pages 647 and 648, 647, 648, Ezra chapter 9, it's on your large print sheets as well, Ezra chapter 9, reading all 15 verses of Ezra chapter 9. Ezra 9, this will be the third and final message on this particular chapter. When these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. And everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting, and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, and I said, O my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens." Since the days of our fathers to this day, we've been very guilty. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, lands to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation, as it is this day. And now, for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God, to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place, that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations which have filled it from one end to another with their impurity. Now therefore do not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. 
And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such deliverance as this, should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. Well, my friends, today... I've got bad news, and I've got good news. Let me give you the bad news first. The bad news is that you are worse in your sin and rebellion against God than you can imagine. Notice the great shame for sin, verse 6. I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God. There is great shame for sin. It is sin that mounts up to the heavens as a stinking garbage heap. Our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. The bad news, you are worse in your sin and rebellion than you can imagine. But the good news is that God's grace is more amazing and it is stronger than your sin. So that if you trust in Jesus, he will not give you the awful punishment that you deserve. Is that not what we see here in verse 13? Since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such deliverance as this. Now, the other thing, by way of introduction, I want to say is this. The drama of that bad news and good news is here played out on the pages of history. See, history can teach us important truths about who we are and how we should act and how we should pray. The lessons of history, learning from history, we talk about that. And so... We learn from history, we apply this message to ourselves. But at the same time, as part of that drama of God acting in history, it also can teach us why that particular time, 2,500 years ago, why it was, why this particular incident was important in terms of the history of redemption. And therefore, on that basis, why it is relevant for us today. So over the past couple of weeks, we've talked about this chapter, first of all, in terms of the problem. What was the problem here in chapter 9 of Ezra? What was the pollution? And here we talked about the non-separation of the children of Israel from these pagan nations. And, of course, the non-separation, particularly with regard to intermarriage. And so we talked some about that. 
And of course, the idea here is that the essence of it, even though it's expressed ethnically here, but the essence of it uh, was a spiritual dimension. That's the point of it. And so they had intermarried with these peoples who were going to lead them astray in these various matters. But also, they, what, what were those abominations, those abominable, those hateful practices? False worship, child sacrifice, sexual perversion. And the people, the people and the leaders were involved in this problem, this pollution. And secondly, last week, we looked at the reaction. The reaction by, uh, first of all, by Ezra. Notice the signs of grief. Verse 3, when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished, to use the old King James. Astonished. He was amazed. He was appalled. Astonishment. These signs of grief. And the God-fearers, the others, the ones who feared the true and the living God, the ones who gathered to Ezra, who were concerned, they too were affected. Why was there such concern? I mentioned three reasons last week. Because of the dishonor done to God. Secondly, because of the mischief the people had done to themselves. And thirdly, because of the danger of God's wrath against them, the punishment and the judgment. But why the extreme reaction in this particular circumstance? So all sin is serious, but why the, why the extreme reaction by Ezra? First of all, because of the pattern of sin that this would, uh, would set forth. Secondly, because of the plan that went into it. You don't just get married on a whim. You plan for a wedding. And so this is something that, the, that was planned. These marriages were planned for the people and for their sons as well. It was generational. The plan that went into it. But then also because of the plot against the covenant community. The plot against the covenant community. For this, this intermarriage then threatened the gospel. As I mentioned last week, it's one thing if you're sailing on a ship and a couple of people get into a fight, a fist fight, or maybe even someone gets murdered, that's bad. But it's even worse if someone starts poking holes in the bottom of the ship, in which case the whole ship could sink. And that's what Ezra was concerned about here in this particular setting 2,500 years ago. So having seen the problem, having witnessed the reaction, we now come to this prayer today, the prayer by Ezra. Notice the setting, the time. It says it was at the evening sacrifice, verse 5. And so when we, usually when we say evening, we mean about 7 o'clock or so. In this case, it would have been about 3 p.m. probably. That would have been considered the evening sacrifice. This is when the people would have been gathering at the house of God to offer prayers. Notice his posture here. We are told that he arose from his humiliation and fasting. 
He rose from his humiliation and fasting. Uh, He still had on his torn garment and robe. And then he also fell on his knees and stretched out his hands. And to whom did he offer this prayer? He offers it, notice it, uh, in verse 5, the Lord my God. The Lord, Yahweh, or Jehovah, the great I am that I am. That's the Lord, my God. So he is the Lord, but Ezra is also saying, but he's also my God. He's owning Jehovah as his own. So as he offers this prayer now, one of the themes that we have here is the guilt. The guilt. He was obviously ashamed and embarrassed to lift up his face. I want to draw out several things here. I think Matthew Henry is the one that gives us a lot of these points. First of all, sin is shameful. Sin is shameful. It's not something you brag about. Secondly, holy shame is necessary for forgiveness. And so, not just the the shame, but the, the shame that leads you to repent Holy shame is necessary for forgiveness. We see also that even the sins of others, I mean, Ezra wasn't the one that was doing this intermarrying, but he he was still part of the covenant community. So even the sins of others should cause us to blush and bring a reaction, like we read about in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 11, where Paul talks about the Corinthians and the, how the, the shame and the, um, that, that they felt with regard to someone in the congregation who was engaged in such horrible sexual sin. Also, shame comes especially to us when we look to God's face. Notice he, he talks about his own face. I'm ashamed to humiliate, humiliate, lift up my face to you, my God. But he's What is he doing? He is seeking the face of God. It's kind of like, it's kind of like facing a parent, isn't it? Maybe a teacher, someone in authority. It's like facing a parent. And so when we look to God's face, when we look to God's face, when we look, as it were, into his face, Just like the shame that we feel when we've been caught by some fellow human being, so there is shame. And shame also should cause us to look to God for forgiveness. You see, what's interesting here is that Ezra was not cast out of the covenant, nor were these people. But the basis, the basis of that So the shame should drive us to repentance, but the basis for their not being cast out was not their sincerity, not their repentance. The basis was the atonement that was accomplished at the cross. The basis is what we talk about here, the the evening sacrifice, all these sacrifices. That's the point. And so that was true for them, As they, by faith, look forward to the coming of the Messiah, it is true for us as we look back to what Jesus has done at the cross. The basis for them 
And the basis for you and for me is the atonement of Christ. So shame and iniquities and guilt, they've risen over our heads. Our guilt has grown even to the heavens. These are great sins. They were long persisted in. He says here, since the days of our fathers, it's generational. And so I ask you today, is this the way you confess your sins before God with a sense of shame? Well, we see then the shame, but then we also come to the punishment. As Rahir talks about the people, we, our kings, our priests, the leaders. Notice what had happened in terms of the punishment in the past. Uh, he says here in verse 7, We've been delivered into the hands of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation as it is this day. But not only in the past, but also the potential in the future. Look at the end of verse 14, where he says, Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us, so that there would be no remnant or survivor? And so the punishment has already taken place in many ways in terms of this, but there's also the potential for it in the future. No remnant nor any who escape. And all of this, because of God's anger, he is the righteous judge. That's what he says here. That he is the one, verse 15, who is righteous, and therefore he is a righteous judge. And so I ask you today, is this the way that you confess your sins before God with a sense of danger? And not just in terms of this life and all these things, all these blessings that were taken away from them, but with a sense of eternal danger, of the punishment of hell. Is that the way that you confess your sins? And then we come to the breaking of God's law, verses 10 through 12. The breaking of God's law, verses 10 through 12. First of all, uh, the admission of guilt. We have for, verse 10, we have forsaken thy commandments. And that reality brings forth the sigh, what shall we say? What can we say? And my friends, those who are truly repentant are at a loss as to what to say. And they will consider carefully what to say to God. God commanded these things through his servants, the prophets, verse 11. So there is this admission of guilt. And then he talks about the law itself. And what's interesting here is that as you look at verses 11 and 12, there are many references to other passages in the Old Testament. First of all, the, in terms of the prologue, he talks here about the uncleanness. Verse 11, the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations which have filled it from one end to another with their impurity. 
The land itself had become defiled. You look at Leviticus 18, verses 25 and following. Leviticus 20, verses 22 and following. Lamentations 1, verse 17. You see that same theme. The land itself had become defiled. And God cast people out of a land. He vom- the land vomits them out, as it were, when they pollute it morally. Also, we see the abominations here as well with their, they, with their abominations, which they have filled it from one end to another with their impurity. Those things which are distasteful. And again, Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 and following. 2 Kings 16, verse 3. 21, 2 and following. 2 Chronicles 28, verse 3. And 33, verse 2. And so here we find then, even in this sort of introduction, this prologue, we find this. But we also find this in terms of the prohibitions, the appeal to the law, don't intermarry. Deuteronomy 7, verse 3. Don't seek the peace or prosperity of these pagan lands or these pagan peoples. Deuteronomy 23, verse 6. The prohibitions. And then verse 12 in terms of the provision. Again, there is the appeal to the law of God. In terms of the strength, Deuteronomy 11, verse 8, you, need, you will be able to eat the good things of the land, Genesis 45, 18, Isaiah 1, verse 19, and the whole idea of, having, of leaving it as an inheritance to your children forever, Ezekiel 37, verse 25. And so, my friends, it is important, I will pause here just for a second and say it is important to look after one's family, being concerned with the generation to come. But I ask you now, I've asked you in turn, rhetorically, is this the way you confess your sins before God with a sense of shame? Is this the way you confess your sins before God with a sense of eternal danger? And now I ask you, is this the way you confess your sins before God with a sense of rebellion? For when we sin, we are offending God. We are attacking his rule. It is high treason. And we are disrespecting his glory. So the prayer now offered by, by Ezra was offered by this man who was a penitent, who was repentant, one who confessed guilt and shame, one who professed God's law. And let me suggest that, that what Ezra was praying here, and as well as other passage, passages throughout Scripture, illustrates that you are worse than you think you really are. But now we get to the good news, and it is that of grace. Did you see this in verse 8? And now for a little while, grace, grace, undeserved favor, grace has been shown from the Lord our God. Verse 9, He extended mercy to us, loving kindness to us. 
Verse 13, he has given us less than what we deserve. And verse 15, as an affirmation of that, for we are left as a remnant as it is this day. And so we find here grace, God's undeserved love and mercy and compassion upon us, poor, wretched sinners. That grace, of course, is extended to what we see here, the remnant. It is an escaped remnant. It is a remnant still in bondage, still slaves, not totally free. But they are a people whom God has not forgotten. God has not forsaken them. The emphasis here on remnant is positive more than negative. The point is, despite all the problems, despite all the rebellion, despite all the sin, God has not forgotten his people and he's preserving that remnant. And it's all part of his grace. As well as the reviving nature that is on here as well. You see, this is the reason for preserving a remnant, to give them life, to revive them. Now, this is kind of interesting here. There are several several figures that are very interesting. Verse 8, it says, to give us a peg or a nail in his holy place. Now, a peg can refer to a place reached after a long journey where a nomad, you know, nomad, you know, wandering around the desert in tents, a nomad is able to put down his tent, but it can also refer to a nail in a house. And so you've, um, you know, you've got, you've got a peg there in the house. What do you do? You hang your hat on it, right? You hang your coat on it. What it means is so that God can be firmly established in the land, God's people can be firmly established in the land by being fixed on God's temple, the house of God, to give us a peg in his holy place. And also we see here so that God would enlighten our eyes, would increase our liveliness, our vitality, and would revive the spirits so that God at the same time would revive us by enlightening our eyes, helping us to see who we are and who God is, his holiness, his grace, his mercy, his love, his salvation, our need for a savior, our need to repent. This then is elaborated on in the next verse. It says, to raise up, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. So to raise up the house of our God, the temple, to restore its ruins. And then to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. This is not so much a reference to Nehemiah's wall around Jerusalem, the literal wall. It's not so much that. You know, Ezra and Nehemiah are related books. But rather, it's, it's a figure of speech here. It refers to the enclosure of a vineyard or a, like a stone fence forming the border between properties. It refers to God's protection. 
And my friends, that protection is found at the house of God and through the sacrifices. Even as we saw back in uh, chapter 3, as we saw back in uh, chapter 3, it's because of the fear of the people. Uh, that the fear, verse 3, though fe- because fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its basis and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening burnt offerings. Again, it goes back to the temple. It goes back to the sacrifices. It goes back ultimately to what Jesus is going to be doing for them and what he has done for us. That's the wall by which they are protected. And so we have the grace, but we also have, my friends, the righteousness. O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous, verse 15, and no one can stand before thee because of this. So I have two points of application today, and the first is this. Maintain separation from the world. Maintain separation from the world. You see, we're called upon, as we noted previously, to separate from the world's ways, not geographically, but ethically. Don't participate in that world system. Separate yourself from the world. But let me also then, in this regard, give some practical advice with regard to marriage. So, some practical advice then. First of all, ladies and gentlemen, prepare yourself as a potential marriage partner. Prepare yourself as a potential marriage partner. Be prepared. Be attractive to somebody else as a potential marriage partner. Be active in the church and cultivate relationships in it. And when I say the church, I don't mean simply the local congregation, but there are opportunities, for example, for conferences and things of that nature. And so be active in the church and cultivate relationships therein. Keep up your devotional life, Bible reading and prayer and the singing of praise. Resist temptation and don't deliberately put yourself in a place of temptation. And share with others the struggles you may have with temptation. And so maintain separation from the world and particularly as you would prepare yourself for marriage. And then secondly, by way of application, realize, as we look at this historically, realize what was at stake here in Ezra chapter 9. Realize that salvation itself was at stake. The whole redemption, the whole redemption of the church was at stake. The children of Israel were on probation. Grace grace was shown for them. But you see what Ezra said for a brief moment. They were still in bonds and they were not acting humbly. And so the children of Israel were on probation, as it were. Ezra was concerned that no remnant would be left 
that the whole covenant community would be destroyed, which would mean that the Messiah could not come. And so the redemption of the church was at stake. And in that context, then, we see once again the atonement, the evening sacrifice pointing to the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. For without that sacrifice, neither prayer nor salvation is possible. Even this prayer must be offered through the atonement, through the merits of Jesus Christ. We don't come in our own name praying for repentance. We come in Jesus' name because that's the only way we can come, even in terms of our repentance. And so we see then that without that sacrifice, neither prayer nor salvation is possible. Thirdly, we can stand in him. You see here, though no one can stand before you because of this, but my friends, in point of fact, we can in Christ stand before God. We can stand in him. Now this this idea of standing, well, we hear this in legal terms, don't we? We hear this in terms of standing. It's a legal term. And we see it, for example, in Psalm 1, verse 5. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And again, in Psalm 130, in the 130th Psalm, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The idea of a courtroom. But in Christ, my friends, we are acquitted. We are pronounced not guilty. He is the one who performed all righteousness for us. And that righteousness being imputed to us, put to our account. And therefore, apart from him, we have no standing. But in him, we can stand. This is all part of the redemption, the salvation that comes. And finally, in this regard then, this redemption, this salvation, requires God's reviving. It requires God's reviving, and that's what he talks about here, right? The the reviving, the the being stirred up. Revive us, verse 9. Verse 8, may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. My friends, there is a lot of deadness and corruption in the church today. There is a love of sin. There is a lackadaisical attitude. And there is therefore a need for reviving. Let me just say that there is a lot of confusion about revival today. Not everything that calls itself a revival really is. Jumping around and hollering is not a revival. Being led by sexually immoral people, as has happened at Asbury University recently, is not revival. Genuine revival involves obedience and proper worship and true doctrine. It means repentance with a view 
to following the law of God, as we have seen here. It means worshiping God as he has commanded. It means believing what the Bible teaches about God and salvation and not false views, which again in our day, many so-called revivals have shown. We need God's reviving. But let's be clear. We cannot work up or schedule a revival. I'm always amused when a sign on the church says, revival next week. I'm sorry, it doesn't work like that. Sovereign grace is necessary. It is the spirit who works when and where and how he pleases. And therefore, if we want revival, we need to call on him that he, that God, that Christ would pour out the Holy Spirit so that the revival can come. May that be the case. May we respond in this moment, in light, as we see this in history, but may we take these lessons and in this moment respond by crying out, Oh God, revive us. Revive us again. Revive us in the midst of years. Revive us, O oh God, we pray. Amen. We please stand for prayer. And Father, we pray that thy Holy Spirit would indeed be sent. Lord Jesus, we pray as thou hast poured out thy Spirit, so pour him out again. We pray in this our day, send genuine revival. Start it here. Start it now. Start it here in Atlanta, O oh God, we pray. Send forth thy spirit, O oh God, to bear testimony to this wicked city of Atlanta. Bring forth, O oh God, thy grace. Manifest the righteousness of Christ. Work first in our hearts. Revive us again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn in closing to Psalm 51, Selection E.